Today, finishing up our course on church history, we're going to do a blitzkrieg of uh, work, about only 15 minutes to take us from the Civil War up to the present day, in 10 to 15 minutes, because then we're going to have a time where we're going to have a panel discussion for some of the people that were founding members and elders of Redeeming Grace Church, and we're going to get a history of, uh, of our own church uh, to cap off our time uh, in church history. So let me pray and we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for the wonderful work that Eric and Skylar put into this course seminar. Thank you for the, the way that it's helped us understand a little bit more about how you've worked through history. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to resolve to be faithful as we go forward, that as we uh, seek to have the torch passed from one generation to another, that the gospel may continue to go forward. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to finish up looking at a few major movements in the 20th century and see how these issues still confront us as Christians today. Right after the Civil War, so back to the Civil War, right after the Civil War, a new series of intellectual threats to orthodoxy was arriving in schools and seminaries and denominations and churches in the Americas. And Orthodox Christianity was facing its greatest theological challenge since the Enlightenment, maybe even since the Reformation. There was a new theology coming down the pike, and it was called modernism. Modernism. It had its roots in the Enlightenment, uh, and it, uh, it, it really was not, was not a Christian movement. It was actually a, such a distortion of biblical Christianity, and it began to infect many churches and schools. Uh, it kind of, you could almost uh, argue that it was centered in Germany and in the German uh, scholars and theologians, and it began to make its way out from there and, and affected in the Americas as well. What is modernism? It's a late 19th and early 20th century movement within Christendom which sought to preserve the Christian faith by adjusting traditional Christianity to developments in modern culture. The main goal was it wanted Christianity to stay relevant in view of the increasing knowledge that, that, the, that was being found in the world, which, which they thought was incompatible with the gospel. So they said, well, we want Christianity to stay relevant, so we're going to have to tweak the gospel in order to fit the things that we're finding. And that impulse remains true today. There's still many who would seek to modify the gospel in order that it might stay relevant. Um, Harry Emerson Fosdick, a hundred years ago last week, preached a sermon called, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And one of his thoughts was, we've got to update, uh, we've got to update Christianity. He says, and then that quote is right there in your notes, if you want to win men to Christianity, you're going to have to update Christianity. Because men, and I don't know whether he's speaking men there, or if he's just talking about people, uh, modern people will not be able to hold on to the gospel unless we make some, some big changes to it. Now, what caused this change? The two main drivers for modernism were Darwinism and higher criticism. So Darwinism. Basically, as Darwinist ideas of evolution began to come into the public arena uh, and were becoming increasingly accepted, and that seemed to push away a need for a creator God, 
Therefore, as a result of that, people said, well, uh, you know, they assumed that evolution was true. They assumed that Darwinistic ideas were true. And they said, well, how are we going to keep Christianity relevant when we no longer have the need for a creator God? And so they began to see, uh, they began to talk about how uh, God works through natural laws. No longer did people think that a miraculous intervention into the natural order, but that God was somehow present in and through the natural processes of the world, including in the evolutionary process. And so the idea was that both on the biological level and on the societal level, evolution was this idea that was, things were going to keep getting better and better and better. This was actually a quite optimistic view of things. Mankind was going to go from, from less cultured to more cultured. Uh, development was going to usher in new ages of, of peace and righteousness. This was the early 1900s, and, and everyone thought that things were just going to get better and better. There was kind of a golden age of culture. And then that kind of came crashing down when something called World War I hit. And suddenly mankind didn't seem so much as if it was going from one degree of glory to another on its own. And then World War II happened and, and uh, huge um, genocides and things like that. That kind of took a beating to it. But still, the idea was uh, we don't need a creator God, so we're going to excuse me, adjust Christianity uh, to where we, we can do without one. The other one was the other big impulse was higher criticism. Higher criticism is taking a look at the scriptures and saying we can't believe anymore. It's just impossible for us as as good intellectual modern people to be able to look at this book and say that it's divinely inspired and you know without errors and things like that. That that's a those are those are those are childish ideas. We can't actually agree in, uh, in, a, in a word of God um, and, and, and the Bible's claims to divine inspiration and historical accuracy. So uh, one, one, uh, one liberal, uh, one modernist, Shiler Matthews, the dean of the University of Chicago Divinity School, he said this, the world needs new control of nature and society. And it's told that the Bible is verbally inerrant. It needs a means of composing class strife. And it is told to believe in the substitutionary atonement. It needs faith in the divine presence of human affairs. And it's told it must, upset, uh, must accept the virgin birth of Christ. So here's all the challenges of the modern world. We've got to respond to those. And you, you people would have us still believing in fairy tales like the virgin birth. That's not going to fly. You know, we've moved beyond that. So that was the, the idea of the modernists. Now, uh, the result of that, as more and more biblical doctrines began to be eroded, was a great quote from a guy named Richard Niebuhr, who I don't know how to pronounce his last name, actually. But he said, that this is what the, the doctrine that you're left with if you take up the modernist man, mantra. He says, A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. So you've gutted the gospel. And, and, you've, and you've done it all in the name of keeping Christianity relevant, when in reality, a God with wrath bringing men broken by sin into a kingdom that has a judge through the ministrations of a Christ who did die on a cross is the only 
thing relevant in the universe. And so, and so there was a there was another coming up that involved uh, a group of people called the fundamentalists. And and the, so they the fundamentalists were alarmed at these attacks on the Bible and on historic Christianity. So a band of Christian scholars came together. They wrote a document called the Fundamentals, which was a series of essays written between 1910 and 1915. And leading pastors and theologians set aside theological differences and united around the centrality of the gospel and the defense of the faith. That included Presbyterians, Baptists, dispensationals. And uh, we see one of those, um, no, that's not what I wanted to say. Uh, we, we see one of the greatest of the fundamentalists at this time was a guy named J. Gresham Machen. And he was the founder of Westminster Seminary. Uh, he, was, he had taught at Princeton Seminary. Princeton, you might remember from a couple weeks ago, was the seminary that had the, the, the kind of old school seminary that stayed faithful to Christ the longest. And yet, at the, at the turn of the, of the 20th century, it was also beginning to reject the ideas of the, of the infallible Word of God and the miraculous. And J. Gresham Machen was a professor there. He wrote an, a wonderful book called Christianity and Liberalism. And if you get that book, Christianity and Liberalism, you'll think it was written like five years ago. It still rings so true today. He wrote a strong rebuttal of modernism in his book. And he argued... Uh, the great redemptive, he, he identified liberal Christianity, modernist Christianity, as not Christianity at all, but in fact a different religion. And he said, the great redemptive religion, which has always been known as Christianity, is battling against a totally diverse type of religious belief, which is only the more destructive of the Christian faith, because it makes use of traditional Christian terminology. This modern, non-redemptive religion is called modernism or liberalism. And what, what, what you get as a result of this new religion coming out is, the, is, the main, is mostly to be found in the, what we call the mainline Protestant denominations. And that is, broadly speaking, the Episcopal Church. In America, we're talking the Episcopal Church. We're talking the hist- uh, large swaths of the Methodist Church. We're talking the Presbyterian Church of the USA, Presbyterian Church USA. Uh, there, there are other denominations. Basically, the moder- the uh, conservatives began leaving these denominations, forming other denominations because the main line, the the big stone churches. I mean, if you go up to St Albans, you look at at you know that huge that, that line of church after church after church after church. And these are mainline churches that largely during this time would have would have decided we, we have to throw out the idea of an inerrant word of God. We've got to throw out the idea of a Jesus that's divine and born of a virgin. Uh, I, I don't know the particular doctrines of any of those particular churches, but they represent denominations that largely bought this idea and still kept the trappings of Christianity without actually having any of its power. Then in the 19- fund the fundamentalists, kind of culturally, they, they lost... They, they lost around, in, 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 if you will, in the broader culture. And what kind of happened is you could almost say they retreated a little bit, and, and they began to develop alternative systems. Other denominations got formed. So out of the Presbyterian Church USA got formed the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in the north and the Presbyterian Church of America in the south, who were still holding to historic Christianity. The American Baptist Church as it began to grow more and more liberal, other Baptists 
came out from them and started other Baptist groups. Uh, so there, there was kind of a... And, and, in, and at this time, uh, peop, some people were, you know, in, in the... In between the wars and especially after World War II, the parachurch ministries like the Navigators and Campus Crusade for Christ and InterVarsity began uh, to crop up because these guys would get, some of these guys, like through the Navigators, which is my tradition, um, you know, guys would get saved on the boats, you know, in, during the war. They'd get saved on the ships from people who were doing Bible study and people who were preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. And they'd go home to their churches after the war, the churches that they'd grown up in. And they, were, they realized that they, they, they didn't see authentic Christian life being lived out there. And so they said, well, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna start parachurch ministries. We're, gonna start, we're, we're not going to stop going to church, we're just, but we're going to realize that our vital Christianity is going to be lived out alongside the church rather than inside the church. I think that was a mistake but it was a natural, it was an understandable mistake. So, uh, again, during the, the inner, between the wars, uh, lots of denominations and seminaries were developing as basically the, the, the modernists won at, uh, at a kind of a cultural level and the, the, the fundamentalists or those who remained true to the, the gospel kind of retreated and formed their, other, their own institutions. Uh, and, there, and so there was kind of this period of kind of retrenchment. And then what happened was, uh, after, again, after World War II in the 1940s, uh, you see the rise of what we might call evangelicalism. And evangelicalism was a movement that said, no, we're going to re-engage. We're going to re-engage with, uh, we're going to preserve the, the doctrines of the fundamentals. And by this time, and remember, fundamentalists didn't have the same connotations that it does now. It was talking about, it comes from the idea of it preserved the fundamentals of the gospel. Now, at, at this point, after the war, you kind of had a split. And some fundamentalists continued to stay in a kind of, you might say, kind of stayed in a kind of retreatist mode, a bit of an isolationist mode. And then there was a new uh, wave of people kind of represent the evangelical wing of conservative Christianity in America, and they were re-engaging with the culture. Uh, popularly, that this rep- is represented by, like, Billy Graham, uh, theologically and intellectually, in uh, Carl F.H. Henry. In Britain, you have John Stott and J.I. Packer and Martin Lloyd-Jones. These new evangelicals, diverse uh, range of belief, but they were sticking. You could, you could say, it could be argued, you, you're trying to get a working even definition of evangelicalism, and it's like you know, trying to define jello, but you could say that some of the, of the core ideas within evangelicalism is an emphasis on is kind of four, four main kind of distinctives. An emphasis on personal conversion, an emphasis on the authenticity and truthfulness of the Bible, the centrality of the cross of Christ, and active Christian service, meaning that our lives actually have to, uh, have to reflect the reality of what's in our hearts. And so that's kind of the, where we have the, the outflow of evangelicalism. And, uh, and yes, go ahead. Uh, the centrality of the cross of Christ, the necessity of personal conversion, the centrality of an, of, uh, an authoritative and, and truthful word of God need for personal Christian service. 
evangelicalism historically had, has had its strengths and weaknesses. Some of its strengths have been a commitment to, uh, to faithful conservative, and I don't mean that politically, of course, I mean that theologically conservative theology, uh, a passion and an energy to engage and to see people one for Christ. Uh, again, even though the, the, the parachurches um, were starting to do that outside the realm of the church, there was still a vast interest in evangelism and seeing people one for the gospel, and you saw that combined with some of the Billy Graham revivals and things like that. Um, so great energy, great desire to see the cause of Christ advanced. Some of its weaknesses would be because, would just be because it had no. Um, I mean, this is is this a weakness? It it just it was very broad uh, in terms of its uh, in terms of its theology in things that were not essential. So it just has. It's just harder to get your arms around exactly what it is. There's, you, can include, uh, you can include movements that we might say have um, some, you know, like you could, lump, you could bring the charismatic movement and, and Pentecostal movement is broadly evangelical, and yet it has some, some weaknesses in theology on the basis of a second work of grace of the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit necessary uh, for sanctification, things like that. Um, and you could argue that it was never really rooted enough in the local church because it focused so much on parachurch ministries and unity across denominations. Uh, evangelicalism in some ways neglected the primacy of the local church in God's salvation plan, which in some respect weakened local churches. And you could argue that that's one of the reasons organizations like Nine Marks is so important, which is helping to strengthen a renewed vision for the centrality of the, of the, the local church in God's great plan of salvation. Uh, some, and I count myself among those, um, would say that certain factions of evangelicalism, broadly speaking, unhelpfully began to seek uh, political influence, undue political influence, which has resulted in certain distortions of the gospel, because sometimes uh, the gospel has, has uh, you know, people have allied it with certain political movements, and that means that sometimes it's been, the gospel's been co-opted for uh, political purposes. Um, it remains to be seen, in fact, whether evangelicalism, I think it still remains a helpful category, a helpful term. I would still identify I am, we're, we're an evangelical church. I would still call myself evangelical. We'll see whether 20, 30 years from now that term continues to make uh, a great deal of, of sense as a, as a coherent idea of what that means theologically. Um, one thing, uh, one movement that's happened in the 21st century in America that I think is a little interesting, and our tradition comes from that a little bit, we have, is uh, the Young Restless and Reform Movement. And that, it's amazing to think that that's already, you know, you know in the realm of history, history at some level. Uh, but that you can almost, you can see a, a renewed interest in Reformed theology, Calvinistic theology in the United States, a significant uptick in that. And that is largely, was largely driven by the work of John Piper. And to some degree, I'd say uh, John MacArthur. And, but John P- Piper in 2000, uh, you, you can actually trace some of this to a particularly significant event that God used um, with a Passion One Day conference in 2000 where John Piper preached a sermon uh, called, let's see, what was it called? Boasting Only at the, in the Cross. And it, uh, it called young people to live for the spread of the gospel to the greater glory of God and to reject the American dream. 
uh, as the, the be-all and end-all for your life. And the Young, Restless, and Reform movement has kind of have seen a, a, a kind of a re-engagement in, let's, let's discover good theology, let's discover the Puritans, let's read them, let's uh, understand the glory of a, of a sovereign God who is great and glorious, uh, and, um, and yet... Uh, we'll see, you know, it's, it's very hard to see things that are only 20 years old. What will it look like in another 10 or 20 or 30 years? But that's had a significant impact on, on our church at some level. We could, be, we could say that we've had an influence from that. Uh, so uh, a minute for questions. And while you're coming up, I'm going to ask the panelists to come up. BJ's going to come up. Yay! Uh, let's see, who else is coming up? John's coming up. Uh, Mungers, are you coming up? Yeah. Because, and then we're... About, about our church. Hey, you. Okay, Martha, you had a question. Uh, postmodernism, uh, a kind of a, a philosophical movement that would reject the nature of objective truth, uh, that would say truth is relative uh, to experience and feelings, and therefore there isn't any such thing as truth. There's only my truth and your truth. And so the idea that, well, you know, you think, you think there is a God, I don't think there's a God, that doesn't mean that one of us is wrong. Any other questions as we get settled? Oh, I shut my, my thing. All right, illustrious, it's great to have you. Everyone here except BJ was here at the get-go, at the start of Redeeming Grace Church. So now we're going to take 2003 and come all the way to the modern day as I get my tablet back on. Who, who, you don't remember this? Why do I have you on this panel? Okay. Hold on. What happened? Goodness gracious, what's this? Okay, I, uh, so uh, while I look up my notes, because I uh, put the wrong document on my tablet, um, I'd like to ask those of you who were there as the idea of Redeeming Grace Church. Redeeming Grace was planted out of Christ Memorial Church, which is in Williston, and all the people here, except BJ, were members of Christ Memorial Church at the time and began to be involved in the process of sending a team, a planting team out from Christ Memorial to plant a new gospel preaching congregation in Franklin County. So this, mo- these questions are just for anybody. Pretty much all of them are, except for a few for just BJ. What was it like as Christ Memorial and the elders of Christ Memorial began getting a sense, we want to do this work? And what was it like for you as you saw this kind of core team mobilizing? Maxing out the um, uh, worship area, and literally, they uh, we had a map of the area of northwestern Vermont, and every family had a little red pin of where they lived. And uh, we looked at that map and saw a concentration of red pins 
up in the north. We were looking, there was a desire to plant a church. And so the question was, where do you go? You know, you couldn't go west, but you could go south or east or north of CMC. And the greatest concentration actually came from this area up here. And that was somewhat the genesis of planting this church was that a, a significant group of people could come from there. So that kind of helped determine where a plant would happen. Yeah. And I would say there was really no gospel preaching churches in that region, or at least specifically in Fairfax. In Fairfax, yeah, in Fairfax, which was the first that was the first targeted town, right? And there was there was no gospel preaching work in the town of Fairfax. So I think at at the time we. We were aware that there were sometimes very small, what the Southern Baptists call works in some Vermont towns, uh, maybe two families, ten people. They seem to be always small, if we even knew about them. And there's a very credible Green Mountain Baptist organization that kind of is aware of all of those. But they, they were not big. They were doing good work, good works. And what we wanted was a church that would be more prominent, uh, a church that would be a church planting church. Uh, obviously, we've talked about that in recent years ourselves. And some, some, something where we could make a difference, a real difference in Vermont. That's kind of what we were aiming at. I think the time, that, that my recollection is that the time was not easy. There was a lot of soul-searching in the process of, of um, meeting uh, with uh, the, in the CMC realm and then meeting as, as the founding uh, elders, the founding leadership team, which was five people at first, um, and then meeting with West Pastor and others. There was a lot of soul searching. It was not an easy time. West Pastor, the senior minister of Christ Memorial. Right. And, this work and, out. and what do we do? Are we really ready to do this? Do we really want to do this in our deep down in the heart? Are we all there as, as a group of people from CMC who would go out, 50 or 60 people, are we really into it in the heart? And there's an awful lot of questions that we were asking at the time, and I think Wes really pressed us on that at, at a few key times. Um, uh, would I do that again? Well, yes, but I would say it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy. So the first, the first elder board was Paul Maffin, who was the founding pastor here, uh, and, and then John and Tim and Craig Combs. Uh, they were the four elders that were initially sent out, along with a team of about, uh, what, six, about 60 people. Christ Memorial uh, saw who had interest in coming up to this area and vetted uh, the folks that were going to be coming up, making sure that they were, they were on board with the vision. And, uh, and then they started to work with the CMC leadership about how to do this. So then, uh, the seven, actually, I, I see here it was a 70-person core team, which includes kids and pets. Um, uh, babies, in babies in the womb. Uh, they started meeting together for home groups. So distinct home groups formed, which would, were made from, from uh, families that wanted to go out with the plant. 
Uh, and the leadership team began began making preparations. So by 2005, in the in the in the spring, uh, details began to fall into place, and you selected what as your meeting location. What was the where was the first meeting? Fairfax High School. So Fairfax High School was the first place they met. I think I actually came up and preached there once when you began to. Oh, David and Goliath. Yeah, that's right. I was your uh, your prop. You were my prop. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, that's right, and uh, and Mayor uh, Jason Mayer. So, no, he wasn't Goliath. He had to then hold the tape measure to show how much taller Goliath was to him. I think, if I remember. So you purchased a church van and filled it with all the stuff you would need to conduct services. It was blue, I think. And then t- Palm Sunday, two thousand five, Redeeming Grace had its official opening and worshipped together as a body with eighty people in attendance. And then the first official service was held Easter Sunday on March 27, 2005, with 110 in attendance. And that was at the high school? It was at the high school. In, in this. It was in the, that little gym with the stage right there, too. Yeah. Auditorium and gym. Yeah, okay, so then 2005 to... Two, that was 2005. Uh, yeah, 2000. Five uh, Easter Sunday. So then, from 2005 to 2009, we can call that the kind of the initial planting stage, or the wandering in the wilderness. Too. Water, you called it wandering in the wilderness, a transient existence, uh, living out of the big blue van. And Paul and Craig led you, uh, and BFA was your home. And then they changed their policy. And what happened then? Uh, so we met in Easter, and by June, BFA came to us and said. We don't want you any longer. Uh, we, there are issues with the janitor, didn't wanted to be paid more money, didn't want to come in on Sunday, and so they asked us to leave uh, BFA. And so we started a pretty frantic search to try and find a new meeting location. Um, so I looked up the places we looked at. Georgia Elementary, no. Fairfax, Fairfax Baptist uh, Building, No. Ascension Catholic Church, no. Westford Elementary, no. Milton uh, Fletcher Union Meeting House, no. St. Luke's Catholic, no. Red Brick Meeting House, no. Place after... They they would let us go through the promised land. Finally, Milton Elementary, the principal said yes, and we latched on to that, and that became our new meeting place in June. So two months in, we were transient. We finally found a home. And that kind of... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Chris. I was just going to say my favorite part about that place is that the, um, the outlets couldn't handle our coffee pots. So John created outlet boxes that alternated between the different outlets drawing electricity so we could have, a, have enough coffee. And wasn't it in the hallway? It was in the hallway, yeah. It was in the hallway. I mean, we, I would have left. <laughs> the success of the church really depended on coffee. Heather?
hand here, so that our kids kind of flip-flopped. And when I asked the kids recently, um, a couple of weeks ago, how, what did you think about all that? They're like, you know, that was really tough, but I'm glad we were able to still have our friends and be able to go to those who we trusted at CNC because mom and dad were so busy making new friends and we wouldn't have had as much ability to get mentored. So they stuck with those that they were being mentored by at CMC and I think that that was very, very helpful. So, but it was a, it was a huge commitment. What happened, you, it, it's important to realize that Christ Memorial Church, as they gave birth to this new church, both mama and baby, it was a shock to the system. Uh, Christ Memorial took a long time before they kind of, kind of got their stride back. Uh, not, not that it was, they were, they considered it all joy, but it was significant. They were sending significant weight bearers out from them in order to start this new church, because you have to send out weight bearers, otherwise the new church isn't going to work. And the, and the church, it, it, you know, the, the, the baby, it was also very hard. And, there, and as we think about RGC one day giving birth to a daughter church, we have to realize that's not going to be, that's not just, you know, hey, let's do this fun thing. Right? It takes a significant expenditure of resources and, and, uh, and an ex- a significant expenditure of, of time and you're sacrificing friendships and relationships are, are naturally stretching as people move and things like that. So not an easy thing. Go ahead. I just want to add one thing. You know, as we were discussing, they, they put pins with the flags where everybody lived. There was one outlier, and it was the Ebers, and I was so encouraged when you guys decided to join with us because they were the outliers living down in Essex, and yet they decided to come up to church in Fairfax, and it could have been, they could have not done that. It would have been easy for them to stay at CMC, and nobody would have questioned it. So. I don't think they were the only ones either, right? The Bittners were down there, and the Larsons were down there. If there's anybody else. Well, we were at the moved. You moved, but you moved. moved two weeks before the church started. Yeah, yeah. 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 The McClymans were down in Essex too for a while. (laughs) So, just for sake of time, let's we're going to be moving on. So then we go ahead. No, I just laughed. Oh, you (laughs) laughed. Then we have uh, the period of 2008 to 2010, because in about 2008, Milton decided they didn't want you anymore, and so you decided not to go back to. Uh, not to go back to the pool and try and find another location that might or might not want you in another year. Oh, mold. Okay, I didn't know that part of it. Elementary to middle to high. So really transient. And then how did it come to be? Tell us a little bit, guys, the story of how this facility came to be built. And John, are there pictures of, the, of that? No. So technology is great until it doesn't work for you. We're having we're struggling with the MacBook today on photos. So when we do get those photos up from early days to, to more present with the building, perhaps after church, to, uh, the morning service today, um, y- you can just look at those and realize what we're talking about. Some of them show photos of, of people sitting on bleachers in the school. Some show this this room still being constructed. It's just a kind of a timeline. So we'll get those up eventually for you. Um, What did we do about this building? Um, 
So that was quarterbacked by James Powell. He was on the planning board. He was on the planning board, but he also quarterbacked the construction of this building. And John Rudden tells me that it was amazing as he was just a member of the Georgia community as he watched, what do you call it, a barn raising? Basically, uh, how, when was the, for the frame and the structure, how long did it take for that to be built? I think it was September 1st to March 19th. Yeah, so, so we in a very short amount of time, this would have been 2010. 2009 they sacrificed for us over the years, and from our parent church, Christ Memorial. Uh, that was kind of Paul's last great project that he did. He was, he was, uh, was he in his 60s when the church began, or late 50s? He was already in his 60s. He knew that he wanted to retire and, and, and head south to, to, be, to live with family, he and Margaret. And uh, so then uh, he announced, shortly after leading through the building program, Paul announced that he wanted to retire, and he was, but he was committed to RGC's well-being, and so he agreed that he would stay on as pastor. He would not leave RGC without a pastor. He would stay on until a new pastor was found. And it took three rounds of pastoral search 
to find the right candidate over the course of three years. So Paul ended up staying an additional three years until the next senior, the next lead pastor was called. Uh, we re, uh, guys, we, I wish we had more time, but just give us a. We only have a, a couple minutes. Can you uh, can you explain a little bit about what the challenges and joys of that time were? Tim had Tim left in the middle of that process to go to Zambia as a missionary with Liss, and so he. He thought the process was too hard and just ejected, I think. <laughs> but, uh, but, and Kevin, were you on the board yet? I was. Okay. I, I became an elder just before we started the searching for the land. Yeah. Uh, I it's the brutal. Hard, I thought the hardest part was getting so far with two candidates and then deciding, you know, it took a year, and then finally deciding this guy wasn't right for us in the end, and then starting over, and then to go through the whole process again for a year, and deciding he wasn't right for us, and then starting over. That was that was uh, that was really hard. I mean, <laughs> I almost wanted to vote yes just to end it. <laughs> we we had the luxury of find men in leadership from Christ Memorial in the luxury of, of the model of that. And so we, as we looked for candidates, and I think the first round of looking probably was uh, 10 or so men, uh, we, we were constantly asking ourselves, is this one a fit for what we're used to? The, the luxury of good leadership, good, solid gospel preaching and moving forward and making a difference in the community as each of these men uh, capable of that and that was constantly what went through our heads. The first of those was uh, from Colorado that we finally brought in to just have a look at us, not candidate, but just have a look for a weekend and he ultimately turned us down the, and, and we said, okay, par for the course. This is what you do in a so-called search committee. Uh, the second one we, we really loved, and likewise he and his wife, uh, Jim and Marlena, I think uh, were their names, they visited for a weekend. We, a number of us, met with them. We really loved them, but as we began to look at that and, and look at references, uh, we kind of began to get some red flags there. And so we turned him down ultimately and began to say, at least I began to say, what in the world are we doing wrong? Will this ever uh, come to fruition? Will we ever be successful? Well, now we can say we know why God had us go through those things so that we could now have what we now have in BJ and in Brad. And so it this just takes time, teaches us, Great patience, but we we have exactly what we what we had hoped for and more through the entire process. It was a good process, but difficult yeah. as most things are. I think that. that so what we had was uh, what ended up happening is if I you can, you can correct me if I'm mischaracterizing it. Uh, we were still significantly um, as a, as a church we were still significantly connected to Nets and Nets is in the business of training pastors and. And the elders began to look at, at uh, to, to, to Nets and say, would you matchmake for us a little bit? 
you're going west, you're going out looking for different candidates to come up for ministry in New England. And uh, would, you find, would you help us find someone that would be a good fit for us? And that is where BJ comes into the picture. Well, actually, the first time BJ's name was mentioned was the first go-around. Wes mentioned this guy named BJ, who was just kind of early in seminary. We were like, well, that doesn't work for us because he was a youngin, and we needed somebody sooner than that. Yeah, but, but by now, it wasn't, he was graduating. So, BJ, I'd like to finish with you. We only have a couple minutes. Would you give us a, a sense of what it was like to candidate here, to come here, and then what, you know, we'll, we'll go a couple minutes late, and what it's been like since you came? <laughs> You're wasting time. You really hosed me. Uh... Yeah. Well, I first, boy, I have no clue. I'm your pastor. I'm so glad to be here, by the way. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, I, I have just missed you terribly. So I'm so glad to be back with you. Uh, so it was a fun time. Uh, if, if getting yelled at can be fun. It was a fun time, met some neat people, and I'll be happy to share with you about that. But I really missed you, and I'm glad to be back uh, where the Lord would have me to be. So a uh, short story would be that my wife and I began to think about church planting because we were from Texas. Uh, in Texas, you can throw a rock and find an evangelical church. That doesn't mean there's not gospel need there. There is. But we wanted to minister in a place where there was just significant gospel need, and Less than 2% of the people in Vermont attend an evangelical church. And so I had met Steve Thiel, who remains a dear friend, who pastors in Connecticut. He was from Vermont. That was my connection to Nets. We began to think about church planting. Ultimately decided we just weren't constituted for church planting as a family. And then we were thinking about pastoring a church. Well, then here's Redeeming Grace. But I thought, this just won't work because... They're going to have a pastor by the time that I'm ready to go up. So we'll just leave that there. Lo and behold, in God's providence, Redeeming Grace did not have a pastor by the time it was really appropriate for uh, the the airplane engines to, to really hit the thrusters and, and launch off the runway. So made connection with the elders, came and visited, and then candidated, and then came up in August of 2013. And then I would say it's been a a joy for nine years now to pastor you, and I am excited and delighted to be here and to see what the Lord has for us in the future. That's what I would say in our time. And I would close by saying I think that BJ has really led us uh, to, as a congregation, be more devoted to the mission uh, to be more cohesive and more more all together working side by side uh, for the faith of the gospel, and uh, let us he in, uh, initiated ministries like the on mission class uh, and, and re reorganized a few a few, a few of our ministries. You want to? I guess. Back? Well, I was just trying to think. We're yeah, I know. late, so I don't want to go over. But here's what I would say: the church was wonderful when I got here, but just a little bit generic and not all that cohesive. So I felt like what I what I've focused on I in concert with the elders is really the centrality of the local church. 
membership in the local church and really kind of bringing us back to our baptistic roots. So you talked about the strengths of evangelicalism. The weaknesses of it are just quite generic. Uh, so we've really become a bit more faithful to our Baptist heritage in my time because we are Baptists and really just kind of focused on the local church as the centrality, uh, the, the central way in which God is forwarding his kingdom, really desiring for us to live on mission together, being committed to one another and furthering the gospel's lives and each other's lives and seeing it make progress. And I'll I stop think, there. And I think that's borne great fruit. Well, we do need to wrap up. Uh, feel free to ask these folks. These folks are a great resource for questions. It's good for you to know what our church's history is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you have been faithful to your church throughout its generations, and you have been faithful to redeeming grace. We pray that we would continue to have our lampstand be burning brightly for the cause of Christ, and may we one day have the opportunity to plant a daughter church out of our congregation, that we might see uh, the same thing that happened with us happen again. Uh, Lord, do this great work, advance your kingdom, uh, and use us to do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. End of course seminars for the year.